<laughs> I always love that. I got one little woo. <laughs> Can you hear me? Is this on? Is this thing on? That's what we usually have to say. So cool. Awesome. Well, I'm really excited to be with you guys this morning. I just appreciate you guys coming out uh, to check out this. Again, as Tony said, we've been in a series in the book of Acts. We've called this series Far From Normal. Uh, one of the things that we've been trying to do as we walk through or traverse maybe the landscape of Acts, one of the things we've been trying to do is take all the different stories and the things that were given in the book that Luke, the author of Acts, gives to us, and we're trying to basically, I, uh, trying to figure out like all the bizarre things and all the strange things that we encounter as we walk through that book, trying to get a handle on how exactly to interpret those because what we've said is that there are a lot of extraordinary or supernatural, and if we're just going to be honest, downright weird stuff that happens throughout the book of Acts outside of our normal experience. Uh, that we kind of go through in our day-to-day, -day, just weird stuff happening. So what we've kind of said is this, is we've basically maintained that in order to really understand the significance or the meaning of the book of Acts and what Luke is really trying to tell us, we have to kind of understand that the Holy Spirit becomes a, what we might call a key, a map key or a map legend to deciphering or sorting through all the confusing things that we tend to find in the book. And uh, as a result, we have given, uh, we've kind of worked through this one statement or kind of had this banner statement be with us as we walk through Acts, and it's this, and it's gonna be put up on the screen, is that the Holy Spirit makes the extraordinary ordinary. So the Holy Spirit makes the extraordinary ordinary. And what are we trying to say there? What are we really getting at? Well, basically, we're saying that all the weird stuff that tends to happen in Acts, if you see it through the lens of the Holy Spirit, it brings an amazing amount of clarity to the book, and we see that the extraordinary things happen actually become an ordinary part of the experience of a Christ follower. And then likewise, a group of people that band together that Luke and others will call the church. So the Holy Spirit makes the extraordinary ordinary. It helps us also decipher this sermon series title that, we've, that we have, which is Far From Normal. And Far From Normal, basically what we'd say if we're looking at Acts, we're saying, hey man, based upon my experience, these things don't jive with what I'm reading here. It's really, this stuff is really far from normal. What we're saying is, because the Holy Spirit makes the extraordinary ordinary, we're saying that with the Holy Spirit, there is a new normal, and maybe actually the way that we tend to live our lives in our modern context is the real thing that's far from normal now that the Holy Spirit is in the world and working through a group of Christ followers called the church. So that's basically unpacking our thesis a little bit, and there's a good reason that I do that. Some of you may be here for the first time, so you kind of get an idea where we're at. Others, uh, maybe you've missed a few, and you're trying to play catch-up a little bit. But I think it's going to be especially important to, to reiterate or have that in the back of our minds, that the Holy Spirit makes the extraordinary ordinary as we look to our next story that we're going to come across today as we just have this brief time and this conversation together. So if you brought your Bibles... Uh, we're going to turn to Acts 16, Acts 16 today. And uh, if you didn't bring a Bible, oops. <laughs> if you didn't bring a Bible, or if you don't have a Bible, that's not an oops. It's a, totally fine, cool. Uh, there are actually Bibles in the seat backs in front of you that you can use. And check this out. If you fall into the camp of a person that either doesn't have a Bible, you don't have one to call your very own, or... Um, 
Or maybe, you know, the one you have is an older translation and it's got a lot of these and thous and you're like, man, this has no relevance or relatability to my life. We actually want you to take that Bible. That's yours now. Go home with it. It's a gift. Merry Christmas. With how cold it's been the past couple days, it feels like Christmas is only a couple days away, so get your shopping done, right? So anyway, Acts 16, in those Bibles and the seat backs in front of you, it will be on page 771. Uh, it will also be on the screen should you choose or elect that option, and we're going to dive right in. Again, keep it in the back of your mind. The Holy Spirit makes the extraordinary ordinary. We are going to encounter, just like we have throughout Acts, and if you read the whole thing, it's no secret, it's nothing unique or special, we're going to encounter some really, really strange aspects in this story. So let's dive in, Acts 16, we're going to start in verse 25, and like I said, it'll be up on the screen for you. So here we go. Brief context, Paul and Silas are in prison, they were preaching the gospel and healed a slave girl, the slave girl had a demon, the demon goes bye-bye, and suddenly things start to get crazy and actually it results in Paul and Silas being brutally beaten and placed in prison, stocks around the ankles and everything, and chains around their wrists. Not a good situation, so that's where you find yourselves. Acts 16.25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. Right. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, because earthquakes do that. They cause doors to fly open. Uh, at once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, drama, because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas, he then brought them out and asked, apparently the right question, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? I like that, by the way. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Sorry, I guess I'm finding this more amusing than you guys, but that's okay. All right, anyway, again, it's weird. Think about it. Verse 31, they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Bam. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house, at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. All right, so again, a lot of really strange things going on in this passage. Let's just, let's just recap for highlight's sake. We've got an earthquake, and maybe the earthquake's not as big a deal because actually in Philippi at this time, there were, uh, it was known, this area or this terrain or this region was known for an incredible amount of earthquakes. So not really an issue to our rational thought or our imagination. We can understand that the earthquake might have happened, but it's not really just the earthquake, is it, right? It's the timing of the earthquake that's a little peculiar. All right, Luke, okay, that's, that's interesting. The earthquake occurs when these guys are in prison singing hymns to God and praying. So we've got an earthquake, and again, I kind of hinted at it before, we've got an earthquake that doesn't just do what normal earthquakes do. 
you would probably expect that if something catastrophic was going to happen with an earthquake, that the prison itself would like implode or something like that. But rather than the prison crumbling, its foundations are shaken, and two, again, really strange things happen. Their chains fall off. And the crazy part is, the last time I checked in my own experience, when there is an earthquake, doors don't just randomly fly open. Come on now, really? Is this, what's going on here? This is strange and bizarre. We look down, I think this is hilarious. Now, J the jailer tries to kill himself, right? Because in that time, the Roman government basically dictated that if any prisoner under your control or your authority, if you were a jailer, if they escaped, you would be killed. You'd be murdered anyway. So he's like, why don't we just rush the process, right? It's gonna happen anyway. Might as well just do this thing. But again, really strange. I mean, if we're gonna be real with ourselves and we're looking at this, really strange. He's about to kill himself and Paul and Silas are like, Paul's like, no, don't do it, dude. We're, everybody's here. No problem. Now, I don't, know about, I don't know about you, but if I were sitting in a jail and if I had my ankles in stocks and my wrists were bound, and by the way, these prisoners were contorted beyond measure so that probably Paul and Silas are awake because they can't, they physically cannot sleep with how they are contorted in these stocks and chains. Last time I checked, if there was an earthquake that opened up the stocks at my ankles and took the chains off of my wrists, the last place I would be is in that jail. And open the doors to the jail. The last place I would be is in that jail. This is strange stuff. Like something's going on here that Luke is trying to get our attention about. And maybe, just maybe, again, think about what we're supposed to have in the back of our minds. Maybe this has something to do with like the Holy Spirit working. And I think it just, it continues to escalate. What's, what's really bizarre is not only that they don't leave, but that after the jailer asks the right question and they share the gospel to him, the jailer's like, sweet, I think I'll just take a couple of my prisoners home with me. And we'll have a nice meal together. Oh, and I'll take these prisoners home with me and I'll clean them up a little bit. They're probably getting pretty stanky at this point, right? So he takes them, again, just let's level with ourselves. If you and I were in the same situation, we would be perplexed. A lot of paradoxical stuff going on here. A lot of stuff that the rational mind of the 21st century would be like, ah, I'm a little bit skeptical. That's bizarre. That's strange. And I actually think Luke intends things to be strange. Again, the Holy Spirit makes the extraordinary ordinary, right? So we could just attribute all of this to the Holy Spirit, and certainly there, we could make a defense for each one of these peculiarities. That's for certain. But I'm actually going to claim, I'm actually going to claim that the strangest part, the part that messes with me the most, the strangest part of this passage has nothing to do with what we've already listed, what we've already covered and highlighted has nothing to do with that. I'm actually going to offer to you, and I think by the time we're done, you're going to agree, that the strangest part about this passage is the very first verse that we read. Look at verse 25 again. Now, think about this. You're in a dark, dank, cold, wet, just take my word on this, feces-ridden prison 
where there is a manhole cover that is the on, above you, that's the only place where light can come in, super dark. And by the way, light doesn't just come in there. Feces from animals and urine from people are coming down and raining on your head. My guess is if I'm in that situation, I'm not going to be doing what they're doing in verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God while everybody else is listening. The last time I checked, I would probably be throwing a temper tantrum at God if I were put in those same difficult circumstances. And if we can search inwardly a bit and find the ability to be honest, I would probably say for the most part, unless you're a superhuman or something, that our reactions would be very, very similar. Not to Paul and Silas, but to the one I described. I'd probably throw a temper tantrum. I can actually think of the temper tantrums my kids would, would throw, and I'd do that to God. God, why would you pay That's what I'd be. And yet here we find Paul and Silas are like, man, God, you're worthy for me to sing at the top of my lungs about how good you are and about how much you love me. And God, we're having a conversation of this prayer. I mean, amazing. So, I guess the question that we have to ask moving forward is this, like what is it about the Holy Spirit's work? Because again, the Holy Spirit helps us make sense of the things that we find in the book of Acts. What is the Holy Spirit producing in the lives of these guys that maybe is missing from our lives or that we have access to and maybe don't even know it or realize it? Now, Acts gets a little tricky too because Acts is a narrative. It's a whole bunch of little stories packed together into one big overarching story. So it can be a little tough for us sometimes because the story, like what Luke doesn't give us is, hey, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and then he doesn't give us the reason why immediately afterwards. So what we have here in this story is basically, like if you think about a tree, right, what we see from the tree is kind of like what we see here in Acts 16 with what's going on with these guys. We see, the big, we see the big trunk, we see the branches, we see the leaves, we see all the stuff that's a result of something that's going on that's far more nourishing behind the scenes or underground, right? I think that's what's happening here in Acts. With Acts, we're given the stuff that's above ground. We're giving an example of lives that are directed, guided, motivated by the Holy Spirit. But sometimes when we look at these stories, we are left to do the homework and investigate back down to find out why that is the way that it is and what becomes normal with the Holy Spirit. So as we've progressed through this series, what we've done is we've taken three questions that have really served to help us walk through each story that we come across. And those questions are these. The first question is, what is normal with the Holy Spirit? Probably a good question to ask, right? What is normal with the Holy Spirit? The second question sort of asks the opposite. It's what tends to be normal with us? What tends to be normal and conventional in our lives? And then the third question we've asked, given those two, is why the difference? If anything, why the difference between the two portraits or the two answers that were given to the first two questions? 
And actually, I'm going to argue this morning that what we are given witness to here is an outward demonstration of an inward, new, normal joy that is resident in the heart of Paul and Silas, that because the Holy Spirit is working in them and because of what Christ has done, we have access to, because of the Holy Spirit, there can be a normal, new joy in the life of a Christ follower, a joy that goes beyond the superficial or temporary often experiences of happiness that we often have in our daily lives. Okay, so normal joy. So we're going to answer the first question. Well, how do, I, how do I get to normal joy from the portrait that we see here in Acts 16? So actually what we're going to do first is, well, let's define joy, and then we're actually going to jump to Romans 5, and I'll explain that in a second. But here is the definition of joy that we've come up with biblically or from Scripture. Why don't you go throw that up on the screen there. That joy in Scripture is a confident assurance that, God's, that God loves us. That in the scripture, joy is a confident assurance that God loves us. Joy is talked about a lot in scripture. It is, it is many, many things. It's broad and we wouldn't have time to unpack everything in an entire series of what joy actually is. But at its root, it is not less than a confident assurance that God loves us. Normal joy. Okay, now with that in mind, I want to say that actually we are given an amazing perspective by Paul in how to interpret their outward reaction in this passage. Okay, so some of us know that the New Testament, over half of the New Testament was actually written by Paul himself. And so it's it's great for us to be able to try to understand, as we try to understand maybe what was Paul's mindset, what was his perspective, what was this joy of the Holy Spirit, how was it working here that manifested itself in the reaction, in his and Silas's reaction in Acts 16. What we're really after is Paul's, again, his mindset. So fortunately for us, over half the New Testament is Paul writing to other churches to give us more of that definition of what's actually happening in Acts 16. And, and Paul revisits the reality of joy and suffering quite a bit in all his correspondence and all his letters, the writings in the New Testament. But in one particular place, I think he actually summarizes it well. And again, it kind of gives us a new perspective as we look at the passage in Acts 16. So what we're going to do just briefly is check out Romans 5. And again, what we're out to get here is Paul's perspective on this idea of joy and how it might connect with the notion of difficult circumstances or suffering. Let's throw that up on the screen there, Romans 5, 1 through 5. All right, so let's just read it here real quick. Paul says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Stop there real quick. All Paul is saying here is that because of Jesus, we have an access to God to a reconciled relationship that formerly in sin, God and human beings were separated and that there was not just a separation, but that there was an enmity, a strife amongst the two parties, God and human beings. But this idea of being justified by faith, what Paul is communicating here is that believing and trusting in the work of Jesus on the cross 
brings a peace with God, a reconciliation, and it brings people who were once at enmity with God into a relationship with him, a strong, connected relationship. So he says, we've been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse two, through Jesus or through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Again, access by faith. Faith is leaning one's entire weight upon what Jesus has done. And because when someone does that, that they have believed in Jesus, they actually experience the wonderful blessing and grace of God in their lives, his favor in their lives. So he says, we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And now here, this next little part is gonna get us, start to, start to tap into this joy concept. He says, and we rejoice. Now rejoicing is the outward bubbling over or bubbling up or the outward demonstration of, the, of an inward joy that we've already defined, a confident assurance that God loves us, okay? So Paul's like, the joy that's inside comes out, we rejoice in the hope, he says, of the glory of God. Now this is good stuff. Paul says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. What's he saying there? So Paul is saying that there's an inward joy that gets manifested or comes out when we think about where God is taking his followers, so the idea of the hope of the glory of God would start to conjure up images of the notion when Jesus would return, God would, as the scriptures say, be all in all, and everything that God started to do when we came to a faith and a belief in Jesus, that he would complete and finish in heaven. So right now, joy, the joy of the Holy Spirit, I think Paul is saying here, manifests itself in an outward thankfulness, a rejoicing, in the reality that we know that God's got it. Because why? Inwardly, joy says that we have a confident assurance that God loves us and he cares for us. And that that love, we rejoice, we celebrate the fact that that love is taking us somewhere. It's growing us, it's maturing us into the people that we need to be or that God wants us to be in order to connect with him in heaven for all eternity. So Paul's like, number one, joy shows up in the Christian life. This confidence, confident assurance in, in the love of God shows up, number one, in the Christian life when we think about what God is doing in us to prepare us for life together with him forever. That's number one. But as we move on to verse three, we discover that there's actually a second spot where rejoicing or joy starts to bubble up to the surface. And this again gets a little strange for us. Let's look at verse three. He says, not only that, it's like he's not dismissing the joy that comes and bubbles over when we think about what God's doing with us and where we're going. He says, not only that, he says, but we rejoice, we get excited and exuberant outwardly because of what we know inwardly. We rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our suffering. Wait a minute, wait a minute. So this, this, is the, this is the stuff, this is the part that I know personally messes with me. How in the world can we say that we would get excited about where God is taking us? That's exciting to me, right? It's all good there, right? How can I get excited about the fact that when I go through 
a horrifically challenging circumstance in my life, that that's actually, those are actually the moments where I can fully experience the reality and the confident assurance that God loves me and is doing something in my life. How do we get there, Paul? I think he answers it for us here. We rejoice in our sufferings. Paul's like, it doesn't stop there, by the way. Knowing, and this knowing is not just a head knowledge that's been taught to somebody. It's a knowledge that one has and understands because they've gone through it. It's a knowledge based on experience. He says, knowing that this suffering, guess what? Suffering's actually doing something in us. God's using it. He's like, knowing that suffering produces something, it produces endurance. The stuff that it takes to get from here to what God has for me. Suffering is the thing that produces endurance. Endurance is producing a character. It's producing a likeness to Jesus in my life. And Character then produces the very hope of the glory of God that we talked about, that God's taking us somewhere. It produces hope. Hope, he says in verse 5, does not put us to shame. Why? This is brilliant. Because God's love, remember our definition of joy, right? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts. The reality, the experiential understanding of God's love that comes into the heart of a Christ follower is given not by manufacturing an emotion of joy by ourselves, but through the, the fact of the Holy Spirit living in a person who has placed their faith and their trust in Jesus. God's love has been poured out, has been almost like made manifest and real in our lives into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The confident assurance, and we can see that here in Acts 16 as we kind of trail back, that Paul and Silas are living out the realities of this verse. That there is a new normal joy that exists in the heart of a Christ follower precisely because the Holy Spirit is constantly ministering and serving the Christ follower in their inmost being to not only remind them of what will be, but also to let them know that it's precisely in the difficult circumstance that God is changing us, transforming a person so that they can have the endurance and the character to actually get there. Wow. I mean, that's a huge perspective shift. It's a huge perspective shift. So if, if we've answered that first question, which is what's normal with the Holy Spirit, that kind of normal joy is normal with the Holy Spirit. But now we've got this other question because while that's really great and that's, that's like the motivational speech, woohoo, rejoice in our sufferings, right? Normal joy, hey, woohoo. Isn't it very different and don't we all know this from experience? Isn't it very different when the suffering actually hits? Because if there's a normal joy that's available to us with the Holy Spirit, that second question that we have posed in every single sermon in the series has been this. What tends to be normal for us? And, and, and if I'm just gonna put the spotlight on me for a second, well, it is kind of, right? Uh, <laughs> If I'm gonna put the spotlight on me for a second, I'm gonna say that 
more often than not, when the tough stuff, when the stuff hits the fan in my life, a lot of times my reaction looks so foreign to what I see in Acts 16, which is a product of the joy that the Holy Spirit works in the life of somebody who believes and follows Jesus. Why is it that when suffering hits me, my reaction is not prayer and worship? My reaction is, why God? Right? Why would you do this to me? I thought you were supposed to provide for me. You're my provider, right? That's what scripture says. I'll supply your needs according to your your riches in Christ Jesus. Where in the world are you? This doesn't feel fun. God, where are you? This hurts. Why, God? Why would you do this to me? I think as I catalog my own experiences in my own past about, and I think about times where life has been an incredible struggle, I find that I react in the way that I can pinpoint very easily in a child as they're reacting or trying to deal with things that maybe the gravity of the situation for a child is, is, not, as, is not as deep or is not as wide, but, but still like, I can, I can resonate with some of their experiences. And it, it was brought to my attention the other day as I was just sitting on my sofa. I was reading a book, I like the word, I was engrossed in a book. And uh, I'm sitting there reading and my daughter comes in and sits down on the couch next to me and she's got her Nintendo DS. She's got her Nintendo DS there. Now, for those of you that don't know what a DS is, if you grew up in the 90s like me, it's kind of like a glorified Game Boy but I just dated myself, so that's awesome. Uh, so she's got this Nintendo DS. It's this handle or portable device where she can play video games, correct? So she's sitting there. She starts playing, and uh, her favorite game, her favorite game on the DS is Pokemon. Is it Pokemon or is it Pokemon? I don't know. I don't really care, but I have to pretend like I'm invested in what she's interested in. So uh, <laughs> I'm kidding, of course. So she's sitting, she sits next to me, and, and it dawned on me. as she, she started talking to me. She started wanting to interact with me, and I'm thinking, you're, you're in your video game. I'm in my book. Let's just leave it, okay? Like, we're, all do, we're both doing things that we really love to do that bring us happiness. <laughs> she sits down. Now, one of the things that I've noticed is when Elena plays her DS, her, her polite meter or her affection meter starts to swell like it just rises and rises and rises to the point where you can tell she's really happy satisfied right just even just temporarily she's happy with this ds with this outside thing that she's playing and when she gets happy she starts to talk a lot (laughs) i mean a lot (laughs) i mean you don't even understand (laughs) i mean you think i'm bad (laughs) up here right she talks a lot so she's sitting there, and I'm, again, I'm engrossed in my book. I'm trying to do the fatherly right thing. And she starts playing her DS, and she goes, Hey, Daddy, I'm playing Pokemon, and I've got, I've got a battle between Oshawa and, and Pokemon and Pikachu. And right now, Daddy, I love you so much. And, and so I just love being a part of this family. And, oh, yeah, and, but Oshawa's not a legendary. I have no idea what she's 
Asho is not a legendary. See, if he was a legendary, he would be really powerful and his awareness points would be up to 8.5. And daddy, I just can't believe that God would give me you and mommy to care for me the way you do. I'm like, whoa, slow down there, Chiquita. You know, it's like, my goodness. So obviously I put the book down. I, I'm just trying to relish it, you know, because it's, it's making me happy too. It's satisfying a temporal need that I have for affection from my daughter. But I tell you what, in the next instant, I, I thought of this. Rather than, of course, do the right thing and relish, you know, the fact that she loves me, even if it, even if it is provoked by Pokemon. <laughs> Rather than relish that, I started, like, the gears started turning in my mind, and I started thinking, oh, man, this is a marked difference from when the battery goes dead on the DS. Either when the battery goes dead on the DS or it's a late night, we're driving home, she's playing in the car, we pull in the driveway and it's like, Elena, turn it off. It's time to go to bed. You got school tomorrow morning, it's late. Oh man, <laughs> the, the polite affection meter doesn't just drop a little bit, doesn't just get drained, it totally tanks in the opposite direction. And there is something that comes out of my child in that moment. She's a very sweet girl normally. I'm telling you this, but I'm, I'm saying this as well. Like it's, no, I don't want to. Or when the battery light goes out, it's like, I need charge. I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. I should just quit life right now. Right? She's got this DS. It makes her happy, but it's an outside thing that when it's gone, doesn't really satisfy. And I noticed this about my daughter. I noticed this with the DS, that when the charge goes out, I realize that she doesn't own the DS. When the charge goes out, she doesn't own the DS. The DS owns her. There is an outside circumstance that is happening that triggers emotion in one way or another. And just like I would probably say you and I, as we wrestle with why doesn't joy, the kind of joy we see in Acts 16 show up in our lives, I'd probably say we wrestle with the same thing. It may not, it may not be the DS. But with Elena, when something outside and external comes on her, I discover that she's actually enslaved to her circumstances. The stuff that goes on around her, and when suffering hits, the stuff that goes on around her, she's enslaved to those things. She will react in a negative way. And again, I would probably say that for you and I, it's really no different with that illustration and how we live life, especially as we think about navigating suffering with a good God that loves us through every circumstance. Instead of a DS, it might be relationships with us. True. When things are going all great, when I'm getting my needs met, when I feel really emotionally connected with my spouse or significant other or my bestie, things are great. It makes me happy. But the minute relational tension starts to find its way into my relationship, 
the minute I don't feel like my needs are getting met, the minute things become a little hard and challenging and I've actually got to work through something with them and oh, by the way, it may be something in me more than it is something in them. The minute that shows up in my life, man, I can't believe that other person. It's a struggle. Might be relationships. Might be success. For those of you that are businessmen and women, you can understand this. It might be when things are going really well, when profits are soaring. It's all good, right? But the minute the stock market does something funky, what happens? What tends to be normal for us is that we go back to the why God. Why'd you do this to me? And the same thing that Paul is saying is intended and designed to grow our faith is the very thing that tanks our faith very thing that tanks our faith. I think it's because we have this idea, and I don't know where it comes from, that when things are going good, that's God. God's doing that because he just wants to make me happy. Right? God's doing that. And when things are going bad, we probably say the same thing, but in a different way. Like, why? What? what? We're perplexed. Why? What, what's going on? My life shouldn't be this way. I know Jesus. And I think we've exposed here then the difference. The difference is the Holy Spirit. And the difference is that a belief and trust in Jesus means that there is a Holy Spirit that, is, that God's love has been poured out into your heart because you have the Holy Spirit. That the reality of the love of God, his care and his concern, not to make you happy, but to grow you into something that's really worthwhile. That's the stuff that's made real in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, and it, it develops and grows a joy that is not conditioned on circumstance. The difference between happiness and joy is how we deal with the external circumstances. The Holy Spirit, the normal joy, gives us a perspective on those experiences. We're actually freed from responding in the typical way to the externals, most of which we can't control anyway, if we're gonna be honest. But the Holy Spirit gives us a perspective that regardless of in plenty, in good times, or in want, in bad times, we have the love of God that's poured into our hearts. And God's producing something in us in every circumstance if we're willing to have our perspective adjusted or shifted by the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. The difference is perspective. We'll probably say the same words, and if we think about Paul and Silas again, it makes sense. We'll probably say the same words. Over here, what tends to be normal is, why God? But the perspective shift of the Holy Spirit doesn't change the words. It's still why God, but it changes the attitude and the perspective because we know that God loves us. We know that he's taking us somewhere. So the question still remains, why God? But the perspective totally changes. Paul and Silas, I imagine, aren't, why God, they're, okay, okay. Why God? What's going on here? And more importantly, as we start to dig back in the passage again, just briefly, more importantly, what are you doing? And awareness of, what are you doing, God? And more importantly, how am I involved in that? How am I involved in this? Because suffering produces something, we rejoice in them, because we've been given the perspective of the Holy Spirit that says, what's going on? 
God, you love me, that part's taken care of, I'll stand on that. How do you wanna use me? What about this situation? Have you placed me in purposely so that I can have joy produce its exponential effect and be poured into the life of another person? It's right there, isn't it? See, you and I, more often than not, the earthquake would come if we were in this situation in Acts 16. The earthquake comes, doors are open, chains are off. What's happening? I'm getting out of Dodge. It's clearly what God is doing. He's giving me the way of escape. And oh, finally, God, thanks for that. Wish you would have done, done that at 11 o'clock and not midnight, but whatever. Instead of that, Paul and Silas are going, okay, why, God? The earthquake isn't, the, for them, it's not the way out, it's the way in. For them, the earthquake is to not only spare the life of the Philippian jailer in a physical sense, but to bring the gospel to the Philippian jailer so that that same joy that's in them could be worked into his life as well. Check it out. The only time you see the word joy or rejoice in this passage is at the very end when it says the Philippian jailer, oh, by the way, and his entire household rejoice because they have discovered the same joy of the Holy Spirit that was in Paul and Silas, they now have for themselves, they have a confident assurance that regardless of what they're going through, God loves them. And, and that's the big difference, that's the perspective shift. And I think we could summarize it as we close it down in this one simple sentence, and we'll throw it up on the PowerPoint here. It's this. Suffering says that God is not doing something to me. He is doing something in me so he can do something through me. Joy and suffering, and by the way, they are linked so many times in the Bible. Joy and suffering says that God is not doing something to me, not out to get me. Instead, he is doing something in me so that he can do something through me. I think about Paul as he's in this Philippian jail and later he's in another prison. He's writing to the very church in Philippi. He says, hey guys, I want you to know that what has happened to me has actually served, my imprisonment has actually served to advance the gospel so that now it's known throughout the entire palace guard that my chains or my imprisonment is for Christ. Paul could easily say, why God do you have me in this prison? Instead here, he does it again. He goes, I want you guys to know that there's no way, potentially, that the imperial guard, that the gospel goes here unless I'm here in this prison because God is not out to get me. He's not doing something to me. He's doing something in me. That's the transformation piece to do something through me for the gospel to go forth so that other people can experience the same kind of joy that comes with the Holy Spirit. God is not doing something to me. He's doing something in me so that he can do something through me. That's the reality of knowing the confident assurance of the love of God because the Holy Spirit's in us as Christ followers. I'm actually gonna ask the band to come up and we're gonna completely shut it down, but I've got two questions that I wanna bounce off you for two different audiences. It's a challenge as we, as we close it down. And the first is for those of you who do call yourselves Christ followers and maybe you're sensing the tension of the disparity between Paul and Silas's reaction and the joy of the Holy Spirit and the reaction that we tend to have in difficult circumstances. 
it's a simple question for, for those of you who call yourselves Christ followers is this, are you experiencing the Spirit's joy? Are you experiencing the joy of the Holy Spirit? Simple question, complex answer. And, and I believe strongly that even as we sing and as we play, this is a tremendous opportunity for you to start to deal with God, the Holy Spirit, in this area of your life. Because actually in the New Testament, when the word rejoice comes up, again, it's that outward manifestation of something, that inward joy. It's most often connected with singing, jubilation and gladness. So even as we sing, is it possible that the Spirit wants to do a work in you to engage in song, to celebrate who God is and be confident in his love for you, even in the midst of the challenging circumstance that you're going through right now? What's that look like? Are you experiencing the Spirit's joy? And the second challenge is for those of you who maybe don't call yourselves Christ followers, maybe you're just investigating Jesus, maybe mom drug you out here, you want nothing to do with them, but you're in earshot of me today and you're thinking, man, my life is just full of the temporal satisfaction and happiness and I'm a slave to my circumstances. A slave to my circumstances. Is it possible that as we worship together, as we sing, is it possible that God wants to deal and work in your own heart so that he can give you something, this internal sense of peace and of his love that's in your heart because of the Holy Spirit? Is it possible that God wants to connect you with Jesus today so you can experience that for the first time? Is that possible? I encourage you, talk to God. Have it out with him as we sing and pray as we hash through some of those questions together. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you for the love that you have shown us in the person of Jesus Christ. God, we want to thank you that that love was most clearly expressed for us in his death on the cross for, on our behalf for our sins. But God, we want to thank you that the reality of that sacrifice that's applied to us when we come to faith in Christ continually gets made very real in our hearts because we don't just get saved and are left alone. We get the Holy Spirit. So God, I ask for every single person's place, regardless of where they're at on their journey of faith, I ask that your spirit would move in the way you want to move and that we would all grow in this understanding of what it means to have his joy of the confident assurance that you love us and that you gave your life, Jesus, for us, that we could connect with you. And God, I'm thankful, Lord, that that is made real in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So God, do a work in us as we sing and as the band plays. Help us not just to get caught in the theoretical stuff of how joy could be expressed in suffering. But help us to de just deal with us, God. Work it in our lives so that, God, we can engage the suffering and the circumstances, the difficulties that we're going through right now in our lives in a way that asks not why, God, but, okay, God, what are you doing? Why? I know that you love me. I know that you're working stuff in me. What are you doing? Just clue me in. Pray this all in the precious name of your son, Jesus. Thank you so much for what you did for us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for making it real.